Well, guys, good morning. We are continuing our series, Different. Different is a word that's often used to describe something that is unlike another person, place, or thing. As in, my Uncle Frank is different, or that house is different, or that hat is different. Different also means separate or distinct. And during this series, we're going to see that God calls you and I to be different. And being different requires a different perspective. And if God is calling us to be different, I believe that he provides us a different perspective. It matters how we see things. It matters how we see people. It matters how we see circumstances. And as we're able to see things differently, we'll be able to respond differently. So take a moment to answer this question. What is special about these words? The answer is they are pronounced differently when the first letter is capitalized. You have Job, Polish, and Herb. See, the whole point of the brain teaser is to assure, it's, assure us how we see life, people, and circumstances. It matters. It matters how we see things. And if we're not seeing things in the right frame, we're going to miss getting it right. And we want to get things right. So this whole series is really based on the conversations I've had with many of you over the last several months. And we just thought it'd be good to put it into a series where everyone can hear. Because here's what I know from experience. There are, there are those who ask, and there are those who want to ask, but don't ask. And so I believe there are many of us, this series could be very helpful. So we're taking the big cultural issues that our culture is really throwing out at us and how we respond like many of you have asked, how do I respond to my teenage son or teenage daughter? How do I handle it with my coworkers or my neighbors? And what do I say when things are being asked of me and they're asking me for a response? And what does Jesus say about these things? And so today we're going to be looking at, at a phrase that we're going to put under the microscope, love is love. And before we jump into that, I just want to say how proud I am of our church. Since the beginning, we believe that our community needed a different kind of church, a church where people could belong before they believe. Now, this was extremely tense because that means balancing truth and grace. It means keeping in front of us at all times truth and grace. Truth, in a sense, is what we say. Grace, in a sense, is how we say it. So since 2017, when we launched, we've had families attend who believe differently than our leadership on gay marriage. And for a couple of years, we had gay people attend and grow to love our community. Even though we, 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 we saw things differently, they, they loved the fact that we were committed to truth and grace. And as they moved on, we've been respected on how we've treated people with both truth and grace. The reason why I bring that up is because we are still in that type of culture where we need to continue to live with truth and grace. As our culture continues further down the post-Christian highway, like I'm convinced like we could really have an early church moment. In the early church, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how they were able to outlast the mighty, powerful Roman Empire. And they did it through a different kind of love. See, Truth is what we say, grace is how we say it, and love, in a sense, is how we show it. 
Truth, grace, and love are rooted in the gospel. Like, think of it like this. When we see how God treated us, our sin was keeping us from a life with him. That's truth. He became one of us to show us how to live. That's grace. And he died in our place to take the punishment of our sin. That's love. So going into this message, we're going to put under a microscope, love is love. That, that's what I've heard. I'm sure that's what you've heard. Love is love. And there was a book that um, is on Epic, which is a program that um, Stafford County Public Schools used. And there was a book, and it talks about how all forms of love is love. And it's, we're going to put that under the microscope. We're going to put that under the microscope. We're going to learn the kind of love that God wants for human relationships and his relationship with us. And there's plenty of hope for same-sex attracted people as well as opposite-sex attracted people. Okay. What the early church stood for was counter to Roman and Greek culture. And as we think of living in a post-Christian America, there are similarities. And then through a lifestyle of truth, grace, and love, Romans and Greeks and Jews were won over by the early church. So there are five things the early church did so well that countered Roman and Greek culture. One, they valued people regardless of what they look like. They valued people. Number two, they helped the poor. They were helping the poor. Many of the poor in the early church were slaves. And they were people who had money, were willing to share what they had so others could have something. Where the empire created social and economical classes, the church quietly shared and gave to those without. Women who, I mean, gosh, they were valued in the early church. And this is why women were the majority demographic early on. The slaves, they were empowered. Even though they were still slaves, they were empowered to live as free because of the relationship with Jesus. Okay, number three, they attempted to make peace through their example. And so church leaders then, they encouraged people to stay in their family. So say you were married, you became a follower of Jesus, and your spouse was not a follower of Jesus. They encouraged you to stay. They encouraged you to stay in your city, stay in your country, be as loyal and as honorable a person as you possibly could in that society without compromising your faith. Another way we could say is peacemakers. Number four, they condemn child exposure. So Romans, if they didn't want their baby, they would dispose of the baby one of three ways. Number one, they would throw the baby out in the cold. They would throw the baby out in a trash heap. And finally, they would drown their baby. And so Christians would see that and they would rescue those babies and take those babies in. People began to notice that and so Romans and Greeks would say, if you didn't want your baby, just give them to a Christian family and they would take them in and they would raise that baby. Final thing that they stood for, they valued, is they condemned any form of sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. So during that time, these were common practices of men. Men would practice Pedestry, which was men having sex with slave girls and slave boys as young as five or six, whereas women were forbidden to have those form of relationships. There was a common practice of religious sex with temple prostitutes. 
there was also a common practice of same sex. So you would have same you would have sex with those of the same gender as you. Now gay marriage was was not common. But Nero, did you know, were, was married to two men. And then another practice was walking around naked. Early on in the early Olympiads, you had male competitors going against other male competitors, athletes, and they were naked. So the early church, they believed it was God's plan for them to live in that type of culture, that type of society. And they believed that God was calling them to silence their critics by doing good and not fighting authority. Now notice the five ways, once again, how the early church was able to silence the critics and outlast Rome. They valued multi-ethnic expression of their faith. They valued or they served the poor. They were peacemakers. They were pro-life and they had sexual integrity. Notice what Larry Hurtado writes. He says, in the early centuries, Christians had no such force they could use. Even if they wanted to, they were forced simply to defend their faith by reason, by argumentation, and by the demonstrable moral quality of their lives and their readiness to live by what they said. As we focus in on sexual integrity and, and how the early church practiced it, we're going to learn why they believed it and why we believe it. So we're going to start from the very beginning. So if you do have your Bibles with you, this is also going to be on your screen as well as in the chat, chat notes. Genesis 1. We're going to go back to Genesis 1. So in your Bible, that's the very first book. So this is what's written. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Have babies, right? Fill the earth, govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So a couple things. One, you and I are different from the rest of the animal kingdom. God created hierarchy where it's us and then the rest of the animal kingdom and the very bottom of the animal kingdom you have you know snakes cats and like the devil right but for us we're over top and i'm there's a joke it was a joke except for the cats and snakes part so we're right we're over the animal kingdom right we're over the animal kingdom there are some animals that reproduce asexually like amoebas but that was not god's design for us god created man and a woman to come together to grow a family to grow their family okay we're the only ones created in the image of god no other animal is created in the image of god we're image bearers all right we have a distinct um dignity worth than the rest of the animal kingdom now, God's design was that sex was supposed to be between a man and a woman in marriage, inside of marriage. Now, here's where the church has gotten it wrong. We've made marriage the ultimate destination for our erotic desires. Then by default, here's what happens. Singleness can become the not good enough for marriage destination. And I want, I want you to hear this. It, it just lend me your ear just for a second. Marriage is God's design, but it's not his destination for everyone. 
I want you to hear that. Marriage is God's design, but it's not his ultimate destination for everyone. That's not the ultimate relationship for everyone. Marriage is not the ultimate relationship. The ultimate relationship for you and for me is with God. The ultimate relationship is with God. I love what Rebecca McLaughlin writes. She says, in the age before smartphones, you needed a camera to snap photos. You all remember this time? When the little roll of film was full, you would take it to be developed. Days later, you would pick up your prints, and in a pocket, at the front of the packet, you'd find negatives. Small squares in black and white that, when held up to the light, it revealed the outlines of your images. Now, too often, here's what happens. When Christians look at what the Bible has to say about sexuality, we only see the, the negatives. We see the sexual boundaries we can't cross or we clutch the little monochrome of human marriage to our hearts as if it was the ultimate thing. We miss that in the Bible, this tiny negative is developed into a stunning wall-sized print. To see that bigger, brighter, much more beautiful vision, we must soak in a river that starts in Genesis, swell through the prophets, burst its banks in the Gospels, and becomes a muddy flood in Revelation, the river of God's passionate love for us. When I became a follower of Jesus, I wasn't married. Right? I, I, didn't, I didn't have to get married before I had become a Christian. Why? Because the ultimate relationship isn't between me and Jenny. No, no, the ultimate relationship is between me and God, God and me, you and God, God and you. See, those who are married, we understand that marriage meets our need for different forms of love. It gets the place for erotic love, eros, right? It's a place to model sacrificial love, agape. It's a place to, uh, for friendship love, phileo. It's a place for familiar love, which is storge. But marriage doesn't complete you. It doesn't complete me. Like, I've known many couples who they, they, they get married, one, because they feel like it's going to complete them or because they don't want to have guilt sex they want to have guilt-free sex so they go rush dig, get married they don't really know each other they get married because they believe that that's going to make everything better and usually when that happens years later a, a miracle is needed to keep them together because here's what we do we, we forget that marriage was meant to do with god right marriage was meant to be done with god Marriage was meant to do with God. See, for those that are listening and maybe you're watching, you may never get married. You may not even have a desire to get married or even remarried. I want you to know, hopefully you feel comforted by this, that you are complete. You are made complete. You are made whole by Jesus. Not by another person, but by Jesus. See, scattered throughout the Old Testament is the metaphor of God being like a faithful husband to Israel. And as Jesus, who is God in the flesh, enters the pages of the New Testament, Paul uses the metaphor of Jesus being like the groom in the church, his followers being the bride. And Paul uses this as a model for how husbands 
are to love their wives. This is how marriages are supposed to work. And man, this took root in the early church because men who were becoming followers of Jesus had to say no to those practices. Notice what he writes. He says, as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. And then he says, remember, these husbands are coming in and they've, maybe they are practicing these things because that's what everyone did in the Roman culture. He says, for husbands, this means love. And the word love is agape, is selfless, sacrificial, faithful love. Love your wives just as Christ loved, agape the church. He gave up his life to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Did you guys notice what Paul's saying? Paul's like, remember, our marriage that's not going to be perfect is modeled after the perfect love that God has for us. It's marriage is modeled after the relationship with God through Jesus. That's the ultimate relationship. And in our relationship with Jesus, we submit to him, right? We submit to him and his teachings. Because when we don't submit to him and his teachings, we miss out on the intimacy of this relationship, right? Like following leads to life, denying leads to death. And why wouldn't we want to submit to Jesus? I mean, Jesus is the one who, who said this and then eventually did this. He, he says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Husbands, during this time, they had to say no to that lifestyle. And they began to sacrificially, selfishly, and faithfully love their wives. And what began to happen is as they were valuing sexual integrity. They were committed to sexual integrity. The early church was able to outlast Roman culture, Roman values. Because it honored people. It honored women. Now, it's clear from the Old and New Testaments that sex outside of marriage is counter to what God desires and his design. And God calls us to be faithful to his design and his desires. He calls us to be faithful. And look, even though we may desire something else entirely, we need to discern if these desires are in line with God's desires. And if they're not in line with his desires, we need to resist through his strength and practice abstinence from those desires. Jackie Hill Perry, who was in a same-sex relationship, and she's out of it, and she reflects back on that lifestyle. This is what she, she writes. Desires exist because God gave them to us, but homosexual desires exist because sin does. Loving him as we were created to do involves both the will and the affections, but sin steals this love God placed in us for himself and tells it to go elsewhere. Sin has taken a hold of the heart and turned it towards something lesser. Same-sex desires are actual. Though born of sin, they aren't an imaginary feeling one conjures up for the sake of being different. With the actuality of the affection doesn't make them morally justifiable. It is the mind 
when conformed to the image of sin that moves us to call evil good simply because it feels good to us. Just as Eve let her body tell her what she should do with it, instead of God's word, which would have reminded her of what it was made for, I was inevitably prone to the same kind of unbelief, the one in which sin seemed better than submission. See, God is for sexual integrity. And when it comes to our same-sex relationships, God calls it to be non-exclusive, not erotic, same-sex love. And every time in the New Testament, the word love is used to describe a non-erotic, non-exclusive, same-sex love, the word is either phileo or agape. Phileo, brotherly love, or agape, selfless, sacrificial love. Maybe in English, love is love because we have a very lazy approach to define love. Like, I can love bluebell ice cream and I love my wife. Those things aren't the same. See, in our culture, love is equal in all kinds of relationships. Family, dating, marriage, same-sex, opposite-sex, mistresses, adults with minors, and people with their pets. See, in the language of the New Testament, where we find our direction, love is not love. There were several terms that meant love. And each term showed a different level of love. See, our words matter. Our words matter. And as we put God's picture of love together for those who are same-sex attracted, the God celebrates non-exclusive, non-erotic, same-sex love between people. That's what his design for you and for me is. Throughout the New Testament, this is the prescription on how relationships are to work among followers of Jesus. And this love is modeled perfectly by Jesus as intimate, affectionate, and selfless. Notice what he calls us to do. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. See, God is incredibly faithful to his relationship with you and his relationship with me. And just like Israel wandered, guys, we're going to wander. We're going to wander from his design and his desires. And if you do wander, he's faithful in his relationship with you. Even though in time you seek forgiveness and he, he gives it to you, there may be consequences of your wandering. Over the last several years, I've met with people and they were in a same-sex relationship and as they sought God for forgiveness, they separated from that person. They, they, and eventually over time, they divorced that person because they believed that God did not sanction and God did not celebrate their marriage. There are some that have struggled through a custody battle. They were same sex and they got married and they adopted. And when they adopted, child grew in their home. And then when they separated and then divorced, it got really messy. I've known those who have left the same sex lifestyle they left the same-sex relationship and they've committed to be celibate where they're, they're, they know that it, they're not wanting to jump into a opposite sex relationship for them they know that the only 
relationship that is going to bring them peace and healing is their relationship with God. See, remember, God is faithful to you. He's also faithful to his design and his desires. And we are called to respond by being faithful. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to dive into something as highly and hotly debated like this. And God, I pray that you would help those parents who are on the other side of the screen for me. I ask that you will give them the strength to navigate these conversations with their kids. Maybe their son or daughter is in a same-sex relationship and they've struggled to find words. They've struggled to, to balance truth and grace. And I pray that you help them do that. I ask that you give them the discernment on when to speak truth and how to show grace. Father, I pray for those of us who are watching and listening and we have some big decisions ahead and we just ask for courage. We ask for courage to lean in and give everything we have and surrender all to our relationship with you because our relationship with you is ultimate. For some of us, maybe we need to confess our sin to not only you, but to someone that we've offended. I pray that you give us the courage to do that. Father, may you be glorified. May your name be made famous. And God, may we do everything we can to submit and surrender to Jesus and his teachings. In Jesus' name.